You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. I'll never forget, like, my first conference in Kansas City. I was 14 years old, and I was in this, like, massive, you know, the Kansas City Convention Center, 10, 15,000 people in the room, and Misty Edwards, um, known as the chief musician at the House of Prayer, was on stage, and I was just enamored by what she was doing because she had this incredible, like, rock band behind her, and the singers were spontaneously singing, like, the Bible. And it was like this, like, musical gymnastics, if you will, where they were, like, going around in spontaneous singing and then would kind of get to this chorus that then the whole room would join in and start singing. And I was, like, enamored by this and came to find out that it was, it's it's called harp and bowl worship. This is Heaven Bent. I'm Tara Jean Stevens. Episode 3, Austin. Hello, my name is Austin Williamson. Um, I'm based out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. On this episode, as we further explore the International House of Prayer in Kansas City, Missouri, Austin is going to share with us his journey to becoming a singer on IHOP's elite worship team. These are the singers and musicians and artists that use their talents to keep IHOP's now decades-long commitment to non-stop prayer and worship day after day after day since September 19, 1999, a gesture they believe will help usher in the return of Jesus Christ and the biblical end times. But before we get into Austin's experience, I want you to hear an example of that harp and bowl style singing that he was just talking about. So this is another moment of authentic worship from the 24-7 prayer room recorded by a former student on their phone. I I ended up at the International House of Prayer um, right after I graduated high school. Austin was involved with IHOP from 2002 to 2012. He was never an intern, like Rachel from last episode, or like a lot of the former IHoppers I've been connecting with. Instead, being on the worship team, he was considered on staff. And for that, he tells me he was receiving a $500 a month stipend. But to get on the worship team, according to a 2018 student orientation booklet, you have to complete at least one semester at IHOPU to even get the chance to audition. IHOPU, again, offers music, media, and ministry training. It's a non-accredited Bible school, basically. And these days, a semester can set you back more than $4,000 U.S. They described it as being like the Juilliard for Jesus. (laughs) Like they, um, and there were, there were like, um, you know, good educators that like knew what they were doing as far as music went, but we all were going because we wanted to, to 
to learn more, to become greater on our instrument. Austin's IHOPU journey begins as a student at IHOPU in its Forerunner Music Academy. FMA is a full-time program that trains up prophetic musicians. I loved worship, I loved music, and so for me, the idea of like being able to go to a school where that's what I would be um, learning sounded like something really cool to me at the time. Austin says he comes from a really conservative Christian home. And grew up singing in church, very heavily involved in all different facets of the ministry, as was my family. Um, So for me, I was solely focused on going like the ministry school route after high school versus um, going to college or pursuing a higher education because it wasn't necessarily something that was even really valued. So I'm really curious about, you know, upon arriving for FMA, you said that students were told they could not use their instruments or voices in school for the first six months. Yeah, they told us that for that first kind of semester, if you will, of being at the school, that we wouldn't be um, using our instruments. The word consecration was always like being mentioned and they kind of spoke of it as like a season of consecration to where we were to focus on, um, on yes, pursuing these greater things of God, kind of getting, getting our hearts worked out, if you will, so that we could really do the work that was ahead of us Um, in a proper way. And so it did kind of like, it kind of messed with you a little bit because you were like all excited and kind of ready to even like share this part of you. But there was such a message of like humility. And and honestly, looking back, I see it as like a breaking down um, of my ability to make choices for myself, my own agency and autonomy. Um, But I felt very much like I was um, being put in a position to submit. Um, And we kind of just had to take things as it came. And we just had to kind of swallow the pill. We wouldn't be touching our instruments um, because there were other things to focus on at the time. After his first term, Austin was allowed to play his instruments again. His season of consecration was over. He was also now allowed to audition for the worship team. I had been visiting this place since I was 14 years old. Um, was now 18. Um, well, I was now 19. And so for my audition, I had to choose like a Bible verse that I wanted to sing through. So there would be a band that was backing me up. They would play a chord progression. And then I would jump on the mic, would sing through that Bible verse, and then would practice what we called antiphonal singing, where we... It was kind of like spontaneous singing, like almost in a round, if you will. And there would be a couple other singers um, that you would do that with. And, um, and so that was kind of the audition. And then the hope was like, so you had a position where like there was a main singer that was the chorus leader. And it was your job to come up with that chorus that was then going to kind of engage the entire room, bring the music up. Um, and like everybody's kind of in that moment together. And so like I came up with this really good chorus and like the band was going and I like felt awesome about my audition and like that was it. So that evening, actually, I was um, in the prayer room um, just doing some of my hours, which um, that's a whole other thing that we could get into because you're required, um, if you're on staff or in school, you're required to do what is called your sacred trust. 
what your sacred trust is, those are the hours that you have committed to be in the prayer room. Um, And depending on your position, um, like that's anywhere from like 20 to 40 hours a week. And you are committing to those times that you are scheduled, if you will, to be in the prayer room. And that was considered your sacred trust hours. Um, And so I was in the prayer room doing my sacred trust and lo and behold, um, Miss Misty Edwards, my idol, um, approached me and um, asked me to like step outside of um, the prayer room really quick because you weren't supposed to talk in the prayer room. Misty Edwards is like royalty at IHOP. She's a billboard charting Christian music recording artist. And if there is a hierarchy of worship leaders there, Misty's at the top. I know you can't hear her very well, but you can catch her vibe here. This is a Misty Edwards session at an IHOP youth conference back in 2009. So she's leading thousands in worship here in a huge arena. So we step out and um, she's like, hey, I'm wondering if you would want to sing with me tonight. And I was like, what? And she's like, yeah, I've got the 10 p.m. It was a Wednesday night. And like, it's funny because around the house of prayer, even there were certain sets that were really like popular that you would want to go to. <laughs> so like the Wednesday 10 p.m. was one that with Misty was like, that was a really good set. So I was super excited to um, that she asked me to sing with her. And it was kind of like a dream moment. So later that night, 30 minutes before the 10 o'clock session, Austin meets with Misty and her team for a briefing. In that briefing, she wanted me to be um, the third um, antiphonal singer. And so that was like also really cool because the way that it was set up, so there would be three main singers and then there were three chorus singers. And um, the chorus singers only jumped on the choruses. They didn't get to do any of the spontaneous singing. So it wasn't as fun. Um, (laughs) And so, so sure enough, that night I was on the third mic and, um, and it was kind of the the first set that would kind of begin the the next four or five years of my full-time ministry at IHOP. I feel like Misty Edwards has like, can you describe her for me, like physically, fashion-wise? Like, what does she look like? What kind of? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> she definitely had um, when I was there. And honestly, I don't, I don't really, I don't keep up with any of these people. I've put pretty um, strict boundaries, even on like my social media, and I choose to not follow any of these people. Um, but back then, um, Misty was very trendy, very cool. Um, wore really cool clothes, dressed really well. And at one point she got dreadlocks. Like I like was just very cool, um, very shy in demeanor and like very quiet, um, but like, but very kind and, um, and soft-spoken. Um, but like not necessarily, yeah, the person that you would think would become this like global celebrity that I don't think it didn't ever seem like she liked that. I know that she did not
Misty was very much in a way like idolized at the House of Prayer and almost seemed to be like this kind of untouchable person. And there were like several leaders at the House of Prayer that I felt like were idolized. And there was almost this like celebrity about certain staff members um, and even in the way that they they carried themselves, but also in the way that they were treated. Whereas like, you know, certain leaders like as Misty would like use backdoor entrances to get into the prayer room and have like kind of even sometimes like security personnel and um, security what for the house of prayer got to be so like known and a lot of people would come into the prayer room and would approach some of the leaders while they were in the prayer room and want to like either talk to them or like ask them for a prophetic word or something like that. So literally there would be like security personnel to keep people from like bothering them. And I mean, just, I feel like, I mean, Terjin, you probably know, like when it gets to like charismatics, like there's some wild people out there. Like there are some, some weirdos that come out um, in these circles and do really crazy things. And so one of the other elements of needing security, there would be times when like, I mean, it happened when I was on stage a couple times, like people would come in and would like rush the stage and would want to say something on the microphone. And it was a lot of the times just like some weirdo wanting to like just throw out some propaganda message. But like there were times when like, and it was sometimes kind of freaky, kind of scary, but it was just, I think due to the influence that this group was having like there was like i mean there was an entire security department at the house of prayer so you mentioned like elite status and yeah. i've seen i've seen you on stage with all these elite people you know singing did you feel like you were given some of that elite status sort of yeah. quality yeah i did i would be given a security person to kind of walk around with me sometimes just so that um, if I was being bothered or approached by anyone, like they would kind of like, I don't know, kind of shoo them off or um, do that talking for me. So yeah, Austin, as one of the elite worship team members, he would travel. They would go on tour like a rock band, but for worship, performing at conferences and churches. They also recorded worship albums on Forerunner Music, the official record label of IHOP KC. And I think that's how I got caught up in it a little bit was I did, I got to taste of that, um, that celebrity. Um, but it's also like, you do feel like you're doing something with so much impact because people are treating you like you are totally other than. And all of that kind of due to, because you're seen as though you've given your life to something greater than the average person, greater than the average Christian. You're not just like going to church, but you've chosen to be what they would call an Anna in the house of prayer that you've given your life to this. And so it's like, it's seen as like this low road of humility to go be in the house of prayer. But certain people, the elites, like there's nothing really very humble about it on the inside. Austin mentioned Anna. She was a prophetess mentioned in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 2. She's known for her commitment to 24-7 worship. And like IHOP, her primary spiritual practices included prayer 
and fasting. Anna is also notable for being the only named female prophet in the entire New Testament. But the chance to pray and worship like Anna and use his talents as a well-known worship singer, that wasn't the only reason that Austin was at IHOP. He was also hoping for a healing. Like if there was anywhere that could fix me, if you will, then it would be this place. For me, um, for my entire life, um, growing up in a Christian household, like I was terrified to reveal that I was gay and that I was attracted to boys from my earliest memory. And so for me, what the House of Prayer was and going to the Foreigner Music Academy in a way was me trying to cure what I believed to be wrong of me. And um, and I had kept it to myself um, and kept this very internal and private, even though it was, it was pretty obvious to others around me. Um, I thought I had kept it quiet, but my flamboyance kind of um, led the way for me. Austin told me about the very first time he ever talked to anyone about it. And it was with a female leader at IHOP. And I was going to her because I actually, so I'm one of five boys, I'm in my family, and one of my older brothers is gay. Um, It was kind of difficult for our family to process through um, having this like evangelical background, but but they did pretty well in, in accepting my brother. I, on the other hand, really struggled with it because this was something that it was making me have to face my own internal struggles. And so I was kind of hoping for some like ammunition, if you will, to be able to understand more of like, okay, this whole gay thing, like it's, it's really wrong. Right. So please prove to me that it's wrong. But I went asking um, because of my brother and, and used that kind of excuse. Like, I've got this gay brother. Can you help me figure this out? What are the verses that I can show him? So he would know that, like, this whole thing, like, it's all wrong and you can't be gay if you're going to be a Christian. And she just point blank asked me, she's like, well, are you gay, Austin? And I was really startled and kind of taken back by that question because it was like, no way am I gay. That was like, I had refused that title, if you will, um, my whole life. And now this person that I'm kind of looking for help um, is is asking me in such a blunt, blatant way that felt very um, accusational as well. I said, you know, no, I'm not gay, but I did admit to struggling with what I called a same-sex attraction. And that led to... Pure Heart. Pure Heart is a deliverance ministry led by Tom and Donna Cole, two longtime IHOP leaders who say they have each found freedom from their gay past through Jesus. And Pure Heart aims to help others do the same. Tom and Donna Cole are now a married couple And for many years, they were both on staff at IHOP. Tom served as the head of pastoral care and the director of reconciliation ministries. I did invite Tom and Donna Cole to join me this season or to comment, but they did not respond. 
but I can still tell you what Pure Heart Ministries says it aims to do, and that's, quote, identify and heal what they describe as inner brokenness. This might involve purchasing their book, Pure Heart, The Restoration of the Heart Through the Beatitudes, and or you might get tickets to one of their conferences. I see that there was a two-day Pure Heart conference just this past summer in South Lyon, Michigan. Pure Heart also offers the chance to register for more intimate classes as well. This class that they led was an eight-week course um, on what they call inner healing. And so I was kind of told, you know, Austin, you you have the same sex attraction and it's um and it's okay, it can be fixed. It's it's because you've either got a father wound or a mother wound or something happened to you, and we gotta figure that out so that we can fix this and, and you'll be you'll be good to go. You know, and did you con- of- did you connect with that? Were you immediately like, oh yeah, I know what this is about? This was where like I had become so kind of like desperate. Um, And so in my thought, I really believed it. I was like, wow, okay, this makes sense. Like, you know, um, like, I don't want this thing. Like, this just feels like if I'm going to be gay, I can't have like the dreams. Like I had the dreams that I had in my life at the time were to, yeah, be this like (laughs) Christian, like worship leader, you know, singing all over the world on, you know, um, and, and living for God. And it felt like I couldn't. Like, none of those dreams, none of that could be facilitated if I was going to be a gay person. And 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 at that time, what I thought it meant to be gay was, like, horrifying, you know? Was, like, was a, was a life of getting AIDS and, like, you know, not having a family. And, like, the, the depiction of what it meant to be queer that was shown to me was something to be feared. So at any point, did you come to officially consider yourself ex-gay or you just never accepted that word in the first place? Yeah, no, I definitely did kind of at one point come to believing that I, yes, had kind of like conquered this whole thing and that I was no longer going to struggle with the same-sex attraction. Like, you know, and I think even going through this Pure Heart program, they kind of teach you that it's not necessarily something that will just go away, but they're going to teach you how to be able to manage it. And so for me, it was like, okay, I just got to have these tools within my belt to make sure that I don't go this route. But for Austin and others like him, Pure Heart was not enough. And after a bunch of weeks of that program, he was eventually recommended for a much more intensive inner healing program called Living Waters. Now, Living Waters was a multi-week program led by IHOP founder Mike Bickle's sister. So her name is Tracy Bickle. And it's a ministry within IHOP that promised a proven path for healing, freedom from things like masturbation, questioning your gender identity, and unwanted sexual attraction. And, and all of that kind of came from that, like, I had been, <laughs> I had confessed to looking at pornography, gay pornography, and was really struggling. Um, and so that was something that there was no, there was so much, like, transparency, and you had to be so open that, like, there were no boundaries. After I went through the Living Waters program, it was just like, oh my gosh, like, I, I, 
I've got my armor on. I can do this. And I actually, I dated this girl for a while who I would just say at the time was like my best friend. Like I, I didn't feel comfortable like holding her hand, nothing. And in this like world of purity culture, it was very easy to be like, we're not going to kiss. We're not going to do anything. So we never did anything physically. Lucky um, you, I, hey? <laughs> I, I would like cringe. Like I felt outside yeah. of my body. Like, and it was like, it was so like against the core of my true self. Um, but I still was so convinced that this was, you know, that, that what was going on inside of me was just wrong and I had to do everything that I could to fix it. I thought the more open that I was, the more transparent that I was, the more light that I let into my darkness, I thought like the greater chances of me, you know, being holy, being pure would, would come true. And, and that is so based in, in so much of the messages and the teachings that the House of Prayer puts out there. Was there anyone else, any other students or interns or whatever that were openly, I'm not looking for names, but like someone else who was struggling with homosexuality that you could confide in or see yourself in? Yes, for sure. Like I, and I would say there was a lot of um, privacy as far as like when you committed um, to not like sharing if, you know, when you were in, if you went to living waters, you weren't ever allowed to like say, Oh, I'm in live living waters with so-and-so, or I like saw this person at living waters. Like, and then even you kind of make a commitment, like when in public, not to like acknowledge that with people. It's, it's kind of like, AA, like, like AA. <laughs> but, um, but at the same time, yes, there were like so many people, other students, other staff members. And it was kind of like, you almost sometimes felt you were like on the inside of like everybody's junk because you many times within these meetings, it was very important to get up on stage and in front of people confess with your mouth what you were struggling with. And it was like, it's humiliating. It's, and it's one of those things that, that does, it breaks you down. And then they come back with this technique that like I've kind of come to learn as love bombing. And they tell you how amazing you are and how you're just this loved child of God. Now, a lot of people hearing all this about pure heart and living waters, they might call this conversion therapy, which according to Wikipedia these days is basically any practice attempting to change someone's sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression to align with heterosexual and cisgender norms. But while maybe you or I might call this conversion therapy, IHOP doesn't. Tom and Donna Cole don't. Tracy Bickle doesn't. But even if they did, conversion therapy was not banned in the state of Missouri back then or to date. In Kansas City, however, there is an ordinance prohibiting conversion therapy for minors. Picking up with Austin's IHOP journey, it also involved him giving his time and talents to The Call. It's the sort of political offshoot of IHOP. The Call was, it was like a movement, basically, and it hosted huge prayer meetings with major Christian leaders. And they called on Christians to pray and fast and protest against major issues like same-sex marriage and access to abortion. 
It was led by now former IHOP senior leader, Lou Engel. We would refer to him as Papa Lou. Another, like, a really loving, tender person with, like, a really damaging message. We would kind of do what we did in the House of Prayer, but on a much grander scale. And we would put on these kind of day-long, like, um, prayer meetings that would always be focused around something much more, like, political. Yes, whether it was the ending of abortion or it was praying, you know, for the sanctity of marriage to be upheld between a man and a woman. How did you, you know, considering your own personal struggles with homosexuality and, you know, deep inside knowing that you were gay, how did you reconcile the work that you were doing specifically, let's say, with like praying against the, you know, for the sanctity of marriage? How did you, was that bothering you or? Oh, it was so conflicting. Like, I'll never forget, um, I was asked to sing and lead worship at the call of Sacramento, and we were, the, that call was like on the steps of the the Capitol in um, California. And there was like a sea of people at that gathering. And I remember we got word that there were protesters that had showed up. And that the SWAT team had been called in. And I remember having kind of like this fear because I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm getting on this stage in front of this massive audience. I don't know who's in the crowd. I don't know, like, I didn't feel safe, but I also felt like I was kind of on the wrong side and, and questioned, like, how could something like this come to such a halt of a moment for me. And I think I did have, like in my heart, I just would try and convince myself of just like having compassion on the protesters and on these people because I was just so engulfed with this opposing message that like I had really grabbed a hold of, that there was something wrong with me. Like, I'll never forget that moment in Sacramento, like where I was just like, am I, am I on the right side of this thing right now? Um, and it would be kind of years later that would, that would take me to, to come to the conclusion that I was on the wrong side. And there we have the beginning of Austin's falling away from IHOP. But it would still be a few more years before he would leave this world entirely. He would eventually spend some time at Bethel Church in Redding, California, the subject for season two of Heaven Bent. He even sang on Bethel's elite worship team for a time. He also wound up going overseas with Heidi Baker. Her overseas ministry came up in season one. You might remember hearing her describe her Toronto blessing experience. And and God just went straight to my heart. And I just cried out, yes, yes. And and God knocked me out and I got electrocuted. I, I thought, what are these people, do? what do they have? Heat lights. I thought I was going to die. Literally, I said, this is it. I'm, I'm going to die right here in, in Toronto. Heidi Baker remains one of the most powerful and successful missionaries in the world. She's the CEO and co-founder of Iris International. 
And I was doing this conference out east um, with Corey and Heidi Baker, who had become like a spiritual mother to me, was going to be speaking at this conference. And um, afterward, Heidi approached me and told me that she was going to be taking a trip. Someone had purchased the King of Spain's yacht for Heidi so that she could do these trips to where she could take this boat to these islands off the coast of Mozambique that um, had unreached people groups that had never heard the gospel. So the goal was to finally take this boat on like the first excursion, if you will, um, the following summer. And, and Heidi asked if I would join her as one of the worship leaders. Austin was on the King of Spain's yacht with Heidi in Mozambique for about a month. This was one of the first trips that I, that I ever took. I think it was the only and first trip that I took without um, a ministry team. I went by myself. Um, I didn't really know many of the people that were going to be on this trip. And um, for whatever reason, I feel like I got some space in my, in my mind and in my heart. And I was also feeling so stuck. Um, I had done so much conversion therapy. I had gone through like what even at Bethel, they would consider it, they call it sozos, like their version of inner healing. I did that. And it was like, this was not going away. And, and I realized that like, I needed to not like submit to this, but just kind of start to be okay and start to accept. Um, So much of what I was doing had become performance driven, and I realized like, that there was no performance that I could do that was going to sort out my sexuality for me. There was, there was nothing that I could, like, no great grandiose measure of service to God that was going to change this. And, and rather than like, kind of giving up, I was like, maybe I just kind of need to give in and start to like, pursuing accepting myself. And so it was kind of like in the silence of being away, like it took me being away from my cell phone, the internet, um, and being in the middle of the bush in Africa to finally be willing to see myself. And, and I was out of the noise of all the expectation that others had put on me and on my supposed calling. And, and I just, I kind of broke and I realized I, I wanted to go home um, to Minnesota. I wanted to be closer to my family and, and I needed to take this story like somewhere else that that I hadn't explored yet. Did anyone try to stop you from leaving? And I mean, not just from leaving Africa, but from leaving ministry. Was there an attempt to stop you? Yeah, for sure. There were several people in my leaving, whether that was coming from the community I had built in California at Bethel, or the house of prayer, like or the, the um, worship teams I had been traveling with, even to the point of like being given prophetic words. I remember a leader telling me almost as a warning, they said, Austin, like beware and just be careful because like God has fame on your life and God wants you to be famous for him. But to the degree that you would be famous for him, 
the enemy wants you just as badly. So be careful to not go that route because you would be glorifying something other than God. And so for me, I still was like, I was kind of going, like Tara Jean, I was like, I still wanted to be this, this Christian thing, this, this thing for Jesus. Like I was so indebted to that. And it felt like horrifying to have to let go of that because I had made this friendship, this companionship with Jesus my everything because I was told to. And so for me, this solution I had pursued was no longer being a solution. And um, and so, yeah, so there was a lot of, of conversation of, of me kind of being told by leaders that I would be forsaking my calling if I walk away from this. Um, and just, yeah, a lot of people wanting to talk me out of it, um, even though this is what I knew was going to be best for me. Today, Austin doesn't go to church at all anymore. But what about his faith status? It's it's ever evolving because um, that's a word that I love now and, and is good in my vocabulary. Evolution was never something good in my upbringing. <laughs> um, but change is beautiful. I have gone through, um, yes, like a major series of deconstruction um, within my faith. I don't identify as a Christian any longer. And, and I'm allowed to explore my faith and my, my belief, my faith tradition with, within my own parameters, within my own agency and autonomy. And it's funny because I have not sang in a church um, throughout all these years. And it's been something that I have that I've laid down and I think for a lot of my life I thought would be laid to rest, but is something that I'm looking to reclaim and to take back in my life. So, so not yet, but yes, I'm, I'm looking um, for that. And, and there are some opportunities on the horizon, actually. So a bit earlier, you described what at the time you thought a gay man's life was like getting AIDS, being alone, not having, you know, people who love you, children, family, yeah. et cetera. Um, fast forward to now, what is your life like today as an openly gay man in comparison? Yeah. Um, oh, it's so beautiful and, and it's so fulfilling. Um, have an amazing partner in my life and have found a sense of freedom um, that I never knew that I could participate in. Um, that's been incredible for me to kind of have the opportunity to take back my education as I was, you know, brought up in schools where I was not thing, um, taught things that are very important to me now. And so it's been this really beautiful journey of kind of slowly but surely being able to take back things in my life that I, I had to sacrifice for a long time, but um, I've been able to kind of pick back up certain things. If you got a message from an old IHOP friend today, showed up in your message box and it said, oh my God, wow, the flame is dead. The prayer room has stopped for whatever, <laughs> for whatever reason. What do you think your gut reaction would be to that? I mean, honestly, like relief. There is a lot of people that have been hurt by the message of control and restriction. And it's gotten to the point that like, yes, there are a lot of people that have lighthearted, gracious experiences at the house of prayer, but there are 
too many people that have been so wounded and and aren't able to find a place to land beyond and the trauma just resumes. Austin ended his relationship with IHOP for good in 2012. And 2012, on our IHOP timeline, that's the year IHOP would make headlines again. Except, unlike the student awakening back in 2009, it wouldn't be for anything remotely positive. In 2012, IHOP made headlines because of the mysterious death of one of their interns. And on the next episode, Bethany. And we don't know exactly what happened. We think she committed suicide, but it's it's very sketch at the moment. No one's there's no information coming out of the group. I thought this is extremely suspicious because why would she kill herself if she had just gotten married? 